This is Fundraising Radio, and today is a guest speaker. We have Michael Reamer, Managing General Partner at New Urbana. New Urbana, sorry. <laughs> so, Michael, let's get started by you giving us some background on yourself and New Urbana. Sure. So, um, thanks for having me on the show, uh, Michael Reamer. Um, I like to call myself an accidental entrepreneur. Uh, dropped out of medical school back in the late 80s to start my first company sold it to Symantec and never went back to school. So since then, <laughs> have co-founded a couple of other companies, uh, was an early executive at Nextel, built the original go-to-market strategy, um, and then ran products there pretty much from the beginning. When I joined, we were, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred people. When I were left, we were 17,000, a $35 billion market cap. Oh, nice. So I've been uh, an employee at eight ventures, three of which I co-founded um, and been involved with probably five or six dozen ventures in some other role, either as an investor advisor um, or a board member. Um, Ten different industries, every possible technology stack. Um, my second company actually was taking uh, technology out of the ex-Soviet bloc um, uh, and bringing it to the U.S. and it's kind of more infamous for the handwriting recognition in the Apple Newton. So mm -hmm. I've done handwriting, I've done voice, I've done data science, um, hardware, software, obviously communications. So um, I'm a, a solid generalist um, and uh, love you know technology and industries. I'm not an engineer, um, never took an engineering class, never took a business <laughs> class, to be honest. Um, kind of learned by the seat of my pants. Um, and uh, did pretty well. Um, about two years ago, um, uh, I had uh, decided to leave a company. I had I joined a company about uh, four years prior, um, which was doing uh, automation in the service and repair of commercial assets like trucks and buses and construction equipment, um, ran products, marketing and um, channels, got a, about $130 million in contract value um, uh, with most of the major trucking companies around the U.S. and then um, just really didn't feel the, the need to keep doing that and decided I really wanted to do something different. Um, and that's kind of how New Urbana started. So my personal ethos um, that I kind of created was one, to give back to the next generation of entrepreneurs. So I do a lot of mentoring um, uh, with different startups around the DC area, mainly in social incubators, which is kind of the second part of that ethos, which is make money and do good. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, New Urbana is a v venture studio focused on making critical infrastructure, so utilities, roads, communication networks, et cetera, you know, smarter, more resilient, and more environmentally friendly. That's really interesting. So before we go into the sales of this episode and talking more about New Urbana, I would like to ask you, what do you think about being a generalist investor versus being a field-specific investor? So I think there is a pretty serious bias towards um, non uh, towards general, generalist investors, some investors who are specifically uh, field-specific investors. They say that generalist investors are less, not as smart money as field-specific investors, which I personally disagree with, but what's your opinion on this? 
Yeah, so my partner at New Urbana is the domain expert. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, I, you know, I think it's a hard, it's a hard one to answer because I think, you know, you know, I'm not a big fan of generalizations from that perspective because, um, you know, if most startups, even with money, still fail, right? So I think uh, Crunchbase did a study, I think the end of last year, and I don't remember the exact numbers, it was like 75% of startups that receive funding, which is only like less than 2%, right? Failed after 18 months and $1.3 million. So money itself is not really that valuable um, in and of itself. So I think the question is, you know, when you talk to an investor, whether they're in, in the domain or not, you know, what value add can they bring to the table to help you be successful and reduce risk? Um, you know, Vinod Kosla has been quoted as saying that 95% of what um, venture capitalists tell their portfolio companies is wrong and probably the rest is actually um, bad. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, you, you really have to find people who you think can create value um, which is one of the reasons, you know, I got enamored with venture studios when I started studying them a couple of years ago, because they really programmatically address the reasons why startups fail. Um, and I don't think the traditional venture model really does that. Now, I think there are some private equity companies that are doing kind of more of this hands-on, you know, programmatic approach. And I think it's a trend that venture um, capitalists will also do over time. Um, but I, I guess I said, I just don't think money in and of itself is enough. And even being a domain expert, you know, if there's not concrete, specific, actionable deliverables to create value, you know, it doesn't really help either. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I'm a big fan of a venture studio model versus venture capital model. So we're on the same page here for sure. So uh, let's talk about uh, New Urbana. What do you like to invest in? I mean, as the name implies, uh, you invest in urban tech, but do you invest in anything else? Yeah, so our focus is actually what we would call critical infrastructure. So mm -hmm. what's been interesting, particularly with the COVID-19 pandemic, is it's highlighted you know, a lot of the challenges in our core infrastructure. And for us, that includes, you know, um, everything from communications to transportation and logistics to um, power, water, I mean, yeah, power, water and waste um, and kind of construction in general, which is, you know, the managing the life cycle of the built environment. Um, and if you look at the growth needs of society in general, whether you're in a big urban mega center or you're in a small town, you know, in rural Virginia, um, you need to have high quality, sustainable and resilient infrastructure in order to have a quality of life from an individual perspective, but also a quality of business life. Um, you can't, you know, you can't work if you can't get internet access. Right. Um, so, um, uh, so that's, that's really our focus. Um, uh, so, you know, it's really about making those things smarter, more resilient, more eco-friendly, which is really the, the key is if you, again, if you, if you look at the amount of build out or, uh, repair that's required in our existing infrastructure, uh, I think it's, uh, what's the number? $13 trillion by 2025, I think. 
Oh um, uh, most of that money will be not as effective as we would like if people continue to follow the same processes that they follow today, which are very wasteful, not very eco-friendly, etc. So that's why you know we're focused on on those areas, um, and uh, and it really has to be something that provides. Um, not only an economic value, but environmental and societal as well. Absolutely. I totally agree with you on this point. So uh, let's talk about how you source deals. So uh, Urban Tech or uh, uh, similar projects are pretty not that popular in a public, you know, but how do you source your deals? How do you find them? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so we've taken a fairly unique <coughs> approach from that perspective. So rather than just put out a shingle and ask people to come to us, um, we take what we call a co-innovation approach. So we actually work with companies, uh, whether that's enterprises or um, public-private partnerships um, or institutions that own or manage or build you know, the things that we just talked about. And we work with them to figure out two things. One, you know, what are their biggest challenges um, both from a short-term perspective as far as operational efficiency, but also from a long-term perspective as far as new revenue growth and diversification. And then second, what intellectual property might they already have that is just sitting on the shelf that they just haven't been able to commercialize because uh, most companies, particularly as they get larger, you know, aren't as nimble and as agile uh, as they would like as far as commercializing new tech. So. We start with the problem first in the industry, and, and then we look for opportunities um, to solve that. Um, one of which could be, you know, putting out a challenge for entrepreneurs um, to uh, submit their ideas that they might have on a particular topic. Uh, it might be you know, using some of the resources and relationships that we have to find companies that exist, but maybe they're in Europe or. Asia or Australia, and they haven't made it to the U.S. yet. So, you know, how can we help them, you know, expand into the U.S. market or vice versa? Um, so, and then we also talk when we work with these companies, uh, look to co-invest with them, right? So, we we want to be able to share both in the IP and the the financial upside of a of a of a successful venture. Mm -hmm. So, it all starts with problem first working with industry, identifying the right domain problems, and then either finding, scaling, or building new companies from scratch. Absolutely. So let's talk about how founders should reach out to you, uh, especially early stage founders who have never really done anything uh, in startup field before. How should they reach out to you specifically? Well, I think in general, um, a lot of founders uh, don't, have a structured process for who they reach out to. So the first thing I always tell people to do is do your research, right? Figure out um, who is in the space making, you know, making investments in the space that you care about. Um, the likelihood that if somebody only focuses on consumer technology and games that they're going to invest in an enterprise B2B software company is pretty low. So, mm -hmm. you know, I would, you know, I would say you know, for people who, you know, have domain expertise, and, and to be honest, you know, I'm a, as I said, a problem first kind of a guy. Uh, we have relationships and internal capabilities to build pretty much anything we'd like. 
<laughs> um, so I'd rather have people who are domain experts, who understand their spaces, and who understand the problems and challenges and the quantitative value of solving them. And we'll help put a team around them uh, and you know go build a successful company. Absolutely, that works. That that's completely understandable. So, um, who should those uh, investors? I mean, not investors, but founders reach out to. So, there is always a mass, uh, a huge number of opportunities for startup founders to go to. So, there are accelerators, there are incubators, there are venture CEOs, there are grants, etc. There are so many funding sources what what do you think is the best funding source for someone who's just beginning his or her journey um i'd say bootstrapping <laughs> um, uh, you know i think you really have to do your homework to figure out you know whether you have an idea that's actually worth solving you know the when i talk to uh, when i mentor companies you know what what i tell them is you know can you can you identify a target market that has both an urgent and an, and an important problem, right? So the other day I wrote a blog post about um, that exact topic and the picture was um, a bunch of rats jumping off of a sinking ship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of the, the subtitle was, you know, even if you have the world's best mousetrap, if your customers, if that's not a priority for their customer, they don't care, right? These guys, are, their <laughs> ship is sinking. So it doesn't that's, matter that's that you have a mousetrap. Yeah. Um, so I really think, you know, do your homework. I think there's value in, um, in lots of things. There's not a single panacea. Um, uh, I think, you know, the best advice is to find somebody that you trust as a mentor, um, not necessarily within an accelerator and incubator, but find somebody who you know can give you some good guidance, um, uh, and um, and then do your homework about where to go. Right? I mean, you know, there is certain value that you can get from accelerators and incubators, um, but you have to understand what that value is. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, uh, I like to say they're going to teach you how to paint, not how to fish. Right? So. Um, uh, um, you know, they're going to teach you about, you know, creating a lean canvas. They're going to teach you about a pitch deck, right? But that's not teaching you how to fish, right? You have to really do the homework to really understand who your customer is and whether they're going to buy your product or not. And I would do that well before you ever have a product, you know, figured out. You know, uh, entrepreneurs should say, wait, wait, I, I got to show you my product because otherwise you won't understand, right? Just I, I just kind of ignore that because if you can't articulate the problem that you're solving, people don't care about the tech. They just want their problem. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's my uh, two cents on that topic. That's, that's a good answer. And here I actually want to discuss something that I don't think I've ever done before in this podcast, but I want to go over a specific example. So I have a friend of mine here in Los Angeles who is doing a startup uh, called to densify LA and the goal of this startup is that he helps uh, real estate uh, people understand if there can be an ADU and some territory and where you can build it. So basically he analyzes the number of 
he scrapes basically the database of the government to find those documents that show if it's possible to build something there or not, what you can build, etc. So basically, he uh, gives you a full plan about the land that you want to buy or that you want to invest in. So he right now has a product build. He can do everything in a late territory or nearly everything. And he is thinking what to do next now. What do you think? What would be your advice for him? So, um, you know, obviously, um, uh, as you look at opportunities, you have to figure out um, kind of two basic questions. Why you and why now? Right. And from a why you perspective, you know, if he truly can curate, you know, a set of data that nobody else has and he can use that in a way that creates value, um, then um, that's great. However, um, as I said before, just having good technology doesn't always win. Actually, it seldom wins. Uh, so the question is, you know, if I was him, I'd say, OK, how do they do it today, right? What are their alternatives, right? And how mm. do I specifically compete against those alternatives? Because your biggest challenge whenever you're selling is status quo, right? So why are they going to change what they're doing today? I mean, in the commercial real estate world, and I'm assuming that's what he's focused on, but I wasn't clear from your example, you know, there are five or six companies just in the last couple of years that have received some pretty big money around, you know, data, right? Because in the end, you know, you need to have the best data to make the best decision about the types of things that your, your friend is working on. So I would understand, I would spend the time to understand who else is in the market, why is what he's doing better or different than others, and make sure that it's quantifiable and talk to as many potential customers as possible not from a sales perspective, but from a, you know, how do you do it today? How big of a pain is it? How big of a priority is it? And, um, you know, how would you, how would you quantify, you know, the pain associated with it? You know, and then, you know, if there was a product that existed that could answer all those things, you know, would you buy it? Um, right. And I think a, a lot of, um, particularly technology first um, ventures, um, don't spend the time to do that customer validation up front uh, or the competitive validation up front. And I think those are two of the most critical things to do before you do pretty much anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so those would be my, my next two steps. That's a good advice. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'll forward him this link so that he can check out this, <laughs> this recommendation from you. <laughs> so, um, Let's talk about the beach deck construction. Uh, as an investor, I assume you get a lot of beach decks, even in cold uh, LinkedIn outreach, cold email outreach. What, first of all, do you even look at those? And if you do, what do you want to see on the beach deck? Yeah. Um, so the first thing um, uh, is that um, it better look nice. <laughs> Right. I, I can't tell you how many pitch decks I get that look like, you know, a fifth grader, you know, painted something. Um, <laughs> you know, you really do yeah. have to pay attention to brand and aesthetics um, and you can't have different fonts and different colors. I mean, it, it really it, it really has to look nice. Um, uh, so that's the first thing. Right. I mean, if it looks like, 
you know, uh, it was done by a fifth grader. I'm probably not going to spend the time to look at it. Um, Absolutely. Uh, the sec the second one is, um, you know, does it tell a story, right? Um, again, a lot of founders uh, and salespeople um, kind of have the th what I like to call the throw up method, right? They just barf all this information at you, and it's not very useful. Um, uh, most people can't assimilate that much information anyway. So, you know, have they been able to succinctly tell their story with a clear reason why them and why not? And, you know, if they don't have a good looking deck that tells a story that's succinct and clear and tells me why them and why now, then, you know, it's probably not going to go much further. Got it. So we got covered the must-have points in the pitch deck. Now let's talk about stuff that founders should not do during the presentation. What do you think are the three most common seeing red flags during the presentation? Don't ever say you have no competition. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, to me, that's that's the you know. To me, that's just admitting that you have a fundamental flaw in your business strategy, right? In um, you know, in my particular methodology that I use, there's eight different types of competitors. Um, and every one of them you have to understand from direct competitors, which is the one that most people think about, you know, and, oh, I do it differently. Well, nobody cares that you do it differently if the outcome's the same. Um, so I'd say, you know, don't ever say that. And again, I think the reason being is it demonstrates poor understanding of the dynamics in the market at a minimum status quo, as I said at the beginning, is your biggest competitor. So, you know, have you created an argument you know, uh, that's compelling enough for them to switch? Mm -hmm. uh, the second one is top-down market sizing. Um, you know, don't tell me that you've got, you know, a $2 billion market opportunity and you're only going to get 1% of that and that gives you this much money, et cetera. Again, that demonstrates a very poor understanding of who your target audience is. Um, it should be built from the ground up based on very specific attributes in those segments because it demonstrates you understand how you're going to go to market, right? How much it's going to cost you to go to market through what channels and how big those opportunities are. Um, so no top-down um, uh, market sizing um, has to be uh, bottoms up. Um, and... Uh, the team is important, but the team's bios is not. And the, the, what's the difference? You know, if somebody gets up and talks for five minutes about their team um, and it's basically reading, you know, their LinkedIn profiles, that's not very useful. <laughs> yeah. Right. What, what somebody wants to know is that you've got people on your team who have skill sets in the areas that are critical for your company to grow and how each of the people on your team is going to fulfill that. And if you've got gaps, it's okay. I think a lot of entrepreneurs worry that if you ever show that you've got a weakness, you know, that's bad. And again, I don't necessarily view that as bad. I'd rather, uh, one of my fundamental rules with entrepreneurs is know what you don't know. And if they don't know that, then that's a big <laughs> red flag. Yeah. Um, but on the team, you know, talk about, why you have people on the team, what roles they fulfill, how that's going to help you grow, and what your gaps are. Because your next slide or two slides later is going to be 
why I need money. And one of them is going to be to hire, you know, four or five people or whatever the number is, you know, to help me build out my team. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great advice. I think those are really important points that some founders actually do miss, especially the bottoms up. Uh, and I think we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Michael, for coming up, for sharing your experience and your knowledge in the field. Really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Good luck and uh, look forward to, uh, to hearing myself talk. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'll share a link right. with you okay, and stay safe. Bye. Absolutely. Thanks.